Team Pastor here, and we're delighted to have you worshiping God with us this morning. I need to tell you a story. I'm going to do my best to protect the innocent parties involved. Um, they're dear friends of ours, and I imagine that uh, perhaps it's possible that you have made a similar mistake as well. And it was this. They love their children's, their children, and as a result, when their children uh, got a little bit bigger, their children, of course, were like, Mom, Dad, let's get a dog. Well, okay, are you responsible? You know, are you going to feed it? Are you going to walk it? Are you going to clean up after it? Oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Notice that at this point, my family has no pets. <laughs> um, so they went for it, and they didn't get just a little dog you know they didn't get little scruffy fluffy you know to come in the house and go out every so often but instead they got two brand new little beautiful yellow lab puppies yeah and i'm telling you these are the prettiest puppies you've ever seen i mean if there's a you know puppy chow commercial these dogs are on it these are beautiful little golden scruffy little labs that you want to just wiggle their face and watch them tumble and give them kisses. Here are these beautiful little dogs. Well, as you know, little yellow puppies turn out to be great big yellow dogs. But they stay puppies for a long time. So these neighbors of ours, they got the, or, whoops, these friends of ours, they got these dogs and... As a result, um, it's kind of interesting to watch things develop. And the whole time, you know, my wife's like, yeah, we'll see how this goes. We'll see how long this lasts. We'll see about this. And I was over there one morning when the dogs were jumping all over the place. And mom was kind of talking to the oldest boy. She's like, hey, get over here. You know, you said you'd take them for a walk. They're ready to go. You know, and she's getting pulled left and right and all over the place. And I'm looking at those dogs and I'm thinking, hmm. I could take care of those dogs. <laughs> those dogs, yeah. They're pulling her all over the place, but I'm pretty sure I know what to do here. And so I'm just watching her a little bit, and her kid's off, you know, playing and not paying attention. And I said, hey, um, you want to hang with that? And she's like, oh, man, they always behave for my husband, but they never behave for me, you know. And they're jumping and wiggling all over the place. I'm like, okay. So I just grab one of them, I'm like, Boom, dog drops to the ground, right? And sure enough, there's a reason they obey her husband. It's because he's like, you know, four inches taller than me and quite a bit bigger as well. And there's just a thing to it, you know. I mean, if the dog realizes what's on the other end of the leash, all of a sudden, it falls into line. That's the way it's going to be. If I'm going to have a dog, which I have before, I've had a German Shepherd and we grew up with pets and stuff like that, it's going to learn to respect me because I'm not going to get jerked all over the place by this thing. I'm the master, that's the dog, and he's going to have to start watching me. So the way I train him when I'm, when I'm raising him is, you know, we go on walks and I might every so often quickly stop. And if the dog doesn't quickly stop, it's a little tug on the neck. And I might turn sharply. And if the dog doesn't turn sharply, then it's a tug on the neck. And as we walk through this process, eventually the dog learns to keep, you know, half an eye on me. 
because it realizes, hey, there's a force, there's a power guiding me that is bigger and stronger, and I need to pay attention to it. Well, guess what? This morning we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to see a very similar concept. What's happening is the people are looking back on their history. As a result of a specific thing that happened, they say, hey, you know what? Maybe we should step back and look. And they step back and they take this sort of overarching grand perspective and they realize that instead it wasn't them just trotting along wherever they wanted, but instead there was this higher power, this greater strength, this bigger hand that was guiding them along the whole time. And any time they try to sway to the left or the right, there's a little tug on the leash that brings them right back into line. Nehemiah chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. We're going to look at the theme, and this is, this is how I want to state it before we even read it, and then hopefully I'll, I'll explain it to you as we go through the chapter. And the theme is this, it's called God's power preserves us. God's power preserves us. Now, let me ask you a question here. If, if you think of preserve, something preserves something, what do you think of? Where does your mind go? Sorry? Canning. Okay, very good. There's a lot of guys out deer hunting. They're probably thinking about jerky and other things like that. You might think of formaldehyde. You might think of petrified wood. You might think of ice cream, lamination, museums, mummies, etc. When we think of the word preserve, we often think something that is physically contained so that it will be so that it will last longer and there is a sense in which in the bible the word preserve means to take care of people physically but it also encompasses a relational aspect as well and those of you who have been married or even those of you who have been divorced know or even if you're a child you know that relationships are hard to preserve that in fact, it's much easier to let them sort of break up either on their own or as a result of external or internal forces than to maintain them. And so in this sense, in this text, what we're going to look at today is God's power to preserve. And by that, I don't mean just physically, but I also mean relationally as well. That God is at work preserving us, both providing for us physical sustenance, but also providing for us a way to relate to him as well. So, given that context then, the way we'll move forward this morning is through this structure. It's basically an ABA sort of thing, and it looks like this. It is you, that is, you, God, are like this. When the people stop and they step back and they reflect, when they think about God and his character, and his essence, they will say, you, God, are like this. But then they'll look at their ancestors and humanity in general, and they'll say, but we, or they, are like this. But you are like this. So basically it's going to go, you, they, you. 
or ABA sort of thing. And you'll see that as we move through this chapter. So, beginning in verse 1, this is Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the first verse in the New Living Translation because that's going to set the context for you in in a way that you can understand. Then I'll switch back to the NIV, or sorry, the ESV. Okay? Nehemiah chapter 1. It says this. On October 31st, the people assembled again. And this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then in verse 5, it says, Then the Levites said, Now stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now here's the you part. For you are Lord, and you alone. You have made the heaven and the earth, the heavens and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, and the earth and all that is on it the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Now, some more you are's. In the following sentences, it's kind of neat, because again, we said at the beginning, we said at the beginning of the series, this is not the book of Nehemiah, but instead this is the book of God. As you recount the history of Israel, this is what this is, you will see that in every single one of these sentences, God is the subject. Other people are mentioned, like Abram, Moses, etc., that come along. But God is the chief actor moving things forward. He is the subject of every one of these sentences. He is the subject of Israel's history. He is the subject of our own. Verse 7 says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard the cry at the Red Sea. And perform the signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depth as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them the right rules and the true laws, the good statutes and the commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go into and possess the land that you had sworn to them. Now, verse 16, we're going to shift. That is God. That is who he is and how he acts. Now, let's look at them. But they, on the other hand, they and our fathers acted presumptuously 
and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said of all things, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not part from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of the heavens and brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Things are going well for them. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. They committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, And you heard from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, that's the judges, who saved them from the hand of the enemies. But after that, they they had rest, and they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet, despite all of that, when they turned to you and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them, according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they, there's the they again, they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder, stiffened their neck, and would not obey. Many years, here's, here's the end point, many years you bore with them, and you warned them by your spirit and your prophets yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So there you have it. Thousands of years of Israel's history wrapped up in a single moment. If you ever struggle to read the Old Testament, there's a passage to start with. Very quick summary version. And what you can see in it, I hope, 
is a pattern that's going to move us forward today, and that is the ABA. It's you are like this. Here's God. But we are like this. But you, even though we are like this, are like this. And that's what moves us through. So the first you that I want to look at then is the you are. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, break it down with what, what's on the slide are the verbs that you see in this passage. So you'll see you are, and so that describes who God is, his character. And then you made, which describes what he did. And then you preserve, which is what he is doing now at the present. So you made, or you are, you made, and you preserve. Now, another way, if you want to um, use categories rather than verbs, you could think of that as perhaps the power and preservation. In other words, the first two would be power, are and made, and the third would be the preservation, because God's power preserves us. So let's look first of all at the first one, you are. Verse 5, going into verse 6, the Levites, that's the priest in the Old Testament, they instruct the people, they're going to worship God, and this is what they say. They say, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. For you are the Lord. You alone. Now, I want to stop here and sort of massage this truth in because this is something that's extremely, I would say, controversial in our culture, in our current climate um, that we live in right now. And that is this, is for us as Christians, we say we are Trinitarian monotheist. Or in other words, we say we believe that there is only one God. One God. And this fundamental truth is absolutely essential to who we are and everything we believe. So from the very earliest phases of development, whether it's spiritually or even physically, we teach our physical children there is one God. Right now, if you go back into the nursery and you listen to the Gospel Project, you're going to hear the little two-year-olds coming out saying, one God, And, and that's all they can say. But that's a really good place to start. Because what that does is it sets us apart from literally billions of people across the globe. It separates us from all polytheists, from Hindus, from Mormons, from whatever else. We say that there is only one God. And that is absolutely essential to Christianity. If you say there are more than one gods, you are in direct contradiction to the fundamental principles of everything in Scripture. In order to be Christian, you affirm that there is only one God. Deuteronomy, the giving of the law, begins like this. He says, (coughs) God says at the beginning of the law, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. This is a fundamental starting place. As you watch this develop through Scripture, you'll see it repeated and reaffirmed in the prophets and in the life of Christ himself. The prophet Isaiah says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and besides me there is no God. 
Then when Christ shows up on the scene, he says it very plainly. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father, that is God, but through me. Christianity, Old Testament Judaism, the whole thing hangs or falls on the fact of whether or not there is one God. When Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin, the message is the same. They say, hey, look, this Jesus Christ, this carpenter from Nazareth, this guy you crucified, you need to know that he is the stone that the builders rejected, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name among heaven by which we must be saved. Now look, as I stand up here and say that today, I'm being recorded on video, and what that means is I could never, ever, ever run for political office. Because I've just said that there is only one God and all the rest are totally and completely wrong. There it is. That in fact, ours is right and theirs is wrong. I just said that on tape. You know, I'm not up here to pray to the God of all faith. I'm up here to pray to the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit. And that's all there is. There is only one God. And we should, in fact, be willing to die for that. That's one that if someone puts a gun to your head and says, how many gods, you say one. They say no two. You say, I'm sorry, there's only one. That's it. This is absolutely essential. Now, look, it's not just doctrinal and heady and controversial and apologetic either. It's also very practical because if you're to live this out, you need to affirm this in your day-to-day behaviors. You say there is only one God. You know what that means? Greed is not your God. Self-interest is not your God. Self-fulfillment is not your God. Self-satisfaction is not your God. Self-realization is not your God. But God is your God. And he comes before self and before everything else. So while it's easy for us to stand here and condemn the Hindus and the Mormons and everything else, we need to also condemn not only Hinduism, but materialism and existentialism as well. And say life is not about how we feel or how we enjoy or how satisfied or realized we are, but instead is how glorified our single God is. It's a singularity of purpose. There is one God. Therefore, I have one purpose, and that is to glorify God. And all of these other things that I may like or enjoy or think are cool fall way under that one purpose. Does God want me to be happy? Well, yes, but in him. Does he want me to be fulfilled? Sure. Does he want me to love my family? Yes, but I do that best by loving him. So in other words, this has not only philosophical, theological, and apologetic implications, but very practical ones as well. On this hangs and falls the rest of the commandments. There is one God, and Christ Jesus is his name. We have one God. You are, point one, God alone. There is one God. We start with that. Now, the next thing it says, which is also pretty cool, verse 6 says that you made, you made. The next verb besides are is made. Now, made in in this text uses some um, poetic language. It says the heaven and the heaven of heavens. And 
I don't think that even in this person's mind that they believe there was a heaven of heavens. I think at this point they're simply being hyperbolic or saying in an exaggerated way, in the stars that we see and the stars that we don't see and everything and everything and infinity and beyond, (laughs) you made it. You're above all of it. Now, again, this is another point at which you have to put your thinking cap on, but there are actual implications for your life as well. So let me walk you through that and show you that. Okay, first of all, God, we say, is the sovereign creator. There are hundreds and hundreds of verses throughout the entire Bible, both old and new, that affirms God as the originator and creator of all things. Even Christ himself says he made them male and female. He affirms Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus affirms creation. So, what happens then is this. (laughs) As a Christian, I think it is very, very important, yea, near essential, that you affirm creation. Why? Because if, let us say philosophically, hypothetically, if there is something that God himself did not create, what are the implications? The implication then is that there is God, but then there is also something outside of God that exists completely independent of him. And in a sense, in that way, it could either be co-equal with him or perhaps even greater. We don't know because it is independent of him. It has its origins in something else. So there is something that was either alongside of or before or equal to or bigger than God. And we cannot say that. We absolutely must say that God is completely sovereign, bigger than all things. That he is the first and the last. That he came before Even there was matter or air or existence or anything, time, space, continuum. God exists completely outside of that. And there he is. And then from him came all other things. And if that is the case, then he has complete sovereignty and control and ownership of it. Since it is his, it is smaller than him, he started it, he is directing it where he wants it to go, and he will end it at the appropriate time. It is completely in his hand and in control. That sets him way outside of everything we see. Even though there are billions of gazillions of stars and planets and they're huge and blah, 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 God is bigger still. And he holds them in his hands And he was before them, and he comes after them as well. And so he looks at these things, and he says, Ah, here they are. No big deal. I know exactly from start to finish how things are going, and I'm controlling them as as they move. This is my project. God is sovereign, completely in power over all things. Now, if that is the case then, okay, wow, that kind of, you know, space-time, continuum, you know, matter, Star Trek, whatever, I'm lost, Pastor. Well, look, this is how it jumps into your life. (coughs) If you believe that, if you truly believe that, that God is sovereign, then how big is that bill? Is it really that big? 
How big is that prognosis? Is it really that big? How big is that catastrophe, that disaster, this reality that I am faced with? Yes, I may not be able to get out of bed in the morning because I am in so much pain I can't see straight. But in reality, God is still bigger than that. And so my faith and my hope, my reality lie not in this present moment and circumstance that is so extremely limited, but instead in an infinite God that is way, way beyond And I can endure then this present struggle, this present suffering, this present pain, knowing that there is someone way beyond my situation that is in fact working all things together for good. Because he came before and he came after, he is in control of, he is sovereign, he is much bigger, and therefore I can have hope. So your employer who is threatening to let you go a little bit early. Yes, that is major for us, but that is minor for God. The divorce attorney who is slandering you. Yes, that is hurtful and wrong, but it is major to us and small to God. Your colleague who is hostile, the person who is attempting to bully you, your crazy neighbor, even the bills, God is bigger. He is bigger than all of this. And when you fundamentally and truly believe that, it dynamically and radically affects both your internal attitude and your external behavior as well. Because God is bigger. So, number one, you are what? God alone. Number two, you made. You are sovereign creator. You're over all things. And number three, what are you doing right now? You preserve. You preserve. One of my favorite authors, uh, a brilliant poet and uh, professor of medieval literature at Oxford University, C.S. Lewis, he says it like this. He says, when Christ at Cana makes water into wine, the mask is off. The miracle has had only half its effect if it convinces us that Christ is God. It will have its full effect if whenever we see a vineyard, or drink a glass of wine, we remember that here works he who sat at the wedding party in Cana. It is God who creates the vine and teaches it to draw up its water by its roots, and with the aid of the sun to turn that water into juice, which will ferment and take on certain qualities. Thus, every year, from Adam's time until ours, God turns water into wine. That men fail to see. God preserves us. God preserves us. Now, he does this physically, as described in the physical creation, but he does this spiritually and relationally as well. As you read this passage, what you saw is God being intentional about setting apart a people group for himself. So he chooses Abram. He calls him. He gives him a covenant. He preserves their family through famine, sends them down to Egypt, enriches them, delivers them out, brings them into the promised land, you know, gives them their homes and their dwelling places and everything else, and is intentionally preserving these people for the sake of relating to humanity through them. God is choosing, delivering, and providing relationship. So, 
Here is God. He is the one God. He is the sovereign creator. And he is the one who preserves our relationship. Now, with that in mind, looking at God, let us then look at ourselves. Who are we or who are they? Well, as you read through this passage and you take the verbs um, that are associated with the we and the they, listen to these as I just riddle them off down through this slide. This is who we or they are. It's a bit of a contrast, I would say. We or they acted presumptuously, stiffened their necks, were stubborn, did not obey, failed to remember, cast your law behind their backs, killed your prophets, and did evil before you. Wow. (laughs) That is not a very flattering picture. And yet that is the reality of both their heart and ours. And what you see happening then is this, is basically in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 25, God is blessing his people. He's being good to them. And it, and it shows this in their context by saying things like, they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of the houses full of good things. They got vineyards and olive orchards and fruit trees. And then look at that sentence. It says, so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Then down at verse 28 in the New Living Translation, it says, as soon as they were at peace, your people sinned and committed evil again in your sight. I would call this the prosperity spin cycle. Basically what happens is this, is somewhat like a, a, a wash machine. You know, you start off with the soap and then there's the rinse and then there's the spin and the dry and blah, blah, blah. It goes round and round again. So too with people. We are sinful and we have a hard time recognizing that. But then stuff comes into our life that's difficult or troublesome and we go, oh man, Lord, oh, I don't like this. Please help. And then God's like, yeah, I'd love to help you. Um, Would you mind picking up your room a little bit and cleaning out the clutter and perhaps confessing some sin? Oh, yeah, sorry about that, God. My bad. Let me fix things. Hold on. Let's see here. I need to uh, be nicer to my kids, maybe take my wife out on a date, you know, and yeah, blah, blah, blah. Okay, God, ready to bless me? Well, okay, now let's see what happens. Okay, we get blessings. All right, woohoo, doing good. See you later, God. Don't need you anymore. Life is fine. All of a sudden, (coughs) the spin cycle revolves again. And over and over again, we get comfortable, we get fat, we get lazy, we feel we don't need God, and we forget. And then something comes into our life that reminds us, oh, by the way, you are not God. You are not in control and you are not the one preserving the relationship. Instead, I am. If it were up to you, you would just be presumptuous, prideful, disobedient, forgetful in killing the good guys and doing evil before God. That's who you are. But look at me. I, God, I am like this. So meanwhile, throughout this extended history, when we see over and over again God blessing his people, 
They reject him. And then it says, in fact, he, he gives them over into the hands of their enemies. He does it on purpose. He lets them suffer so that all of a sudden they will reorient their perspective and put their eyes back on God. So how does that apply to us? Well, you know what? You should pay really close attention here because if you don't want to suffer, you know what that means? Pay attention to God. Pay attention. Man, he is the master. He is the owner. We are the animal on the leash, if you will. And I know that doesn't seem complimentary, but walk with me, if you will. As we're walking with God, let us not all of a sudden see the kitty cat across the street and decide to bolt. Well, what's going to happen? Boom! He's going to yank our chain and bring us back into line. Why? Because there's a car coming and he doesn't want us to get hit. If you're not keeping your eyes on him, God will redirect you. And it's not because he's a mean God, but instead he wants to maintain and preserve you. And sometimes he does that through punishment. And you look at his people and such is the case. He wants to bless them. He wants to give to them, but he can't let them run out in the street. And so when they start to stray, it is time for the master to say, oh, fall into line. Pay attention. There's someone bigger than you guiding this whole thing through. Pay attention. And that is my warning to you today as well. Look, hey, if things are going well, great. But pay attention. Don't assume that things are going well because it's all about you. If you look at this text, it's clear. We are not the subject of the sentence. We are not the good guys here. God is good. God gives. We, we stiffen our necks. Now, apply that to this analogy. What happens if that dog is still pulling and it's stiffening its neck? That's not a good dog. What kind of dog do I want? I want a dog that's going to turn its neck as soon as I give it the slightest little hint. I want it to be paying such close attention to me that I don't even have to jerk the chain. In fact, at some point, we'll get to, we'll get to a point where I'm going to drop the leash and we're just going to walk. And I'm going to be sitting in my chair and, and, you know, out by the fire and I'm going to say, hey, can you go do this for me? And the dog looks at me, gets up and goes and does it and comes back. Then we've got a good relationship. It can tell by the tone in my voice how I'm feeling. Now we're communicating. Because we've worked this thing for years and years and years and I can just look at him and he can look at me and we know exactly what each other are thinking. You know, he's thinking treat and food. (laughs) I'm thinking slippers and paper, right? Here's this dog. I want him to pay attention. I want him to have a neck that moves back and forth all the time. And God is applying this analogy to his people and saying, man, you guys got stiff necks. How hard do I have to yank the chain before you start paying attention? Soften up. Don't be stubborn. Pay attention to your God. So too with us. Soften your hearts. Don't stiffen your necks. Don't be stubborn. Pay attention to your God. If you feel someone yanking your chain, then you better look up and see what's going on. Don't get caught in the cycle. Watch out. If you're doing well, pay attention, man. Keep watching. If you're struggling, look up. The answer is the same. So you, God, are like this, but we, we are like this. 
Now, the final thing, which is the encouraging part, is this. It says, but you, but you, even though we are like this, even though we are stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious, disobedient, sinful people, you, verse 17, are ready to forgive. You're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Verse 31, nearly the same thing. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Then take that verb gave and read it all the way through the chapter and what you see. What did God give them? He gave them land. He gave them signs. He gave them his covenant. He gave them food. He gave them water. He gave them leaders over them. He gave them his spirit. He gave them kingdoms. He even gave them enemies. He gave them saviors or judges, and he gave them his goodness. This, my friends, is the good shepherd psalm of Nehemiah. This is the good shepherd in the life of Israel. Listen to Psalm 23. You know, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. He does what? He makes me lie down. Because sometimes the sheep don't want to lie down. He said, no, here's your spot. Lay down. His rod and his staff, they come for me. Why? Because sometimes the naughty little sheep walks out of line and all of a sudden the rod has to say, boop, 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 back in line, little sheep. That's a cliff. Watch out. Boop, 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 boop. Let me tap your bottom a little bit so you pay attention next time. Back in line, little sheep. Back in line. He's the good shepherd who guides his people. Why? Because goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is preserving us. God is preserving us. And this is what Paul means then when he, in Romans, says, you know, look, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. <coughs> and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And for the end goal, those whom he justified, he glorified. And that is how we know then that all things work together for good according to those who are called according to his purpose. Because God is sovereign. He is the only God. He is above these things. And he is all powerful. Therefore, he can guide it from beginning to end. And as his sheep strays, he pulls out his rod. He pulls out his staff. He yanks the chain and does whatever he has to do to get them back into line. And then as they line up, They fit into his plan, predestined from the beginning, called, justified, and ultimately to be glorified. That then is why in Philippians the apostle can say, hey, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Why? Because he is the good shepherd guiding us along. You, God, are like this. But we, people are like this. But you are ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who does not abandon his people. I'm so thankful that God works like that. I'm hopeful that you do as well. Sometimes it's hard to receive, you know, the punishment on one end. But at the same time, you've got to understand that that is for your good. Today we're going to come to a point in the service shortly following. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's a really neat thing because it's a covenantal act of God whereby he is 
physically demonstrating to us both his physical provision and his spiritual provision as well. That he is outside of us guiding this thing to the end, to completion, because he is the Alpha and the Omega, the sovereign creator over all things. Will you please pay attention to him? Will you pay attention? He is the master. He is in charge. God's people have come to a certain point in the story, and they look at the wall, and they say, wow, that's really cool. You built that. And they start to look back on their own life, and they're like, wow, everything else too. Not just this wall, but our whole history, back to the very beginning. And such is the case with us. Today, as we reflect, we look at this one thing, and we say, wow, you did that. But it's not just this one event. You know, it's our entire lives, this entire humanity, the whole ball of wax. From the very beginning, God is at work. So I want to encourage you today, no matter what you're facing, God is bigger. It's tough. It's a challenge. Pay attention. Walk close, and the good shepherd will guide you through. Father, you're a good and gracious God.